This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. So welcome to Bite Into It, where we discuss computers, new technology, gadgets, and all fun things on the internet. Tonight on the show, it's me, Laura Summers, at The Reigns, and I'm joined by the wonderful Joe Eaton, who's playing Robin to my Batman. So thanks for joining me tonight, Joe. It's so exciting to be on the show with you. Thank you for having me. Um, so we've got a whole lot more of me than normal tonight because unfortunately um, our stalwart Vanessa has had come, come down sick with a nasty bug and um, we're, we're sending out some, some love and some warm vibes for her with hopes that she gets better soon and we're missing her. Um, so please bear with me if it's a little bit rough around the edges tonight. Um, I'll do my best, but I'm sorry if I'm not either velvety like Vanessa or as entertaining as Warren. I'll do my best. Um, so tonight... Uh, we're going to talk about uh, MedTech, and we have two really wonderful um, interviews, and we've got Andrew Yap and Bernard Duchenne, who are here to talk about their startup MedTasker. Um, MedTasker builds products for hospitals, and they're trying to make their tech systems better, so um, I'm pretty sure most of us would have experienced some horror stories or heard about horror stories in the medical system and hospitals in particular. Have you got any any like juicy tales, Joe, of things that have gone wrong for you in a hospital or anything that's shareable? I'm actually one of the few people I know who's never had a hospital stay. Really? Yeah. Knock on wood, dude. That's yeah, amazing. well, I, that's probably the right... Yeah, it's definitely one of those, once you see behind the curtains, you don't really want to eat in that kitchen anymore, I think. But I do um, kind of work in the health industry, so Mm. this is of interest to me. Excellent. Well, these these two guys we've got to come in tonight, they're on the ground trying to make tech systems better from the inside out. So I I suspect that's going to be a really fascinating interview. I'm looking forward to that. Um, But before we get stuck into that, we've got some news for the week. Um, There's been some interesting things happening, but um, one that I'm I'm very keen to talk about is this review that Labour has called for of Australian government ICT spending. So the opposition Labour Party has called for a review of the government's higher ICT spending and digital transformation program. And if you're wondering how much higher, it's gone from an average of approximately $6 billion um, a year until the previous financial year where it ballooned up to about um, 9 billion Australian, which is obviously a big leap. And certainly for those of us who've been paying attention to what's been happening in government tech over the past year, it doesn't seem like we're getting a good bang for our buck. Um, We've had some pretty embarrassing um, snafus going down and particularly the vaulted census site absolutely failing and the um, taken being taken offline after distributed denial of service attack and that that whole lead up to a big technology product uh, a project rather really sort of fizzling and and being not a great release um, so these the the um, economics committee report into the census debacle was particularly critical of the bureau um, bureau's technology supplier IBM and that's quite interesting because it's sort of a truism around the tracks that you don't get fired for hiring IBM and as as I understand it no one has actually been fired for any of the problems that came out of the census um, website release but certainly it does seem like that they spent a ton of money for maybe not a great result so 
it's good to see that these things are being brought to public attention. Um, what are your feels, Joe? Do you think this is something that we need to hold the government more accountable for? Like, how do you, how much spending do you think is too much? Well, I am really uninformed about these kind of issues. Mm. So I feel, I don't feel I'm qualified to make kind of sweeping statements, but I do, I do like to see the census results and, mm. and see them used for good. Mm. Well, certainly I know pretty much every department in government requires the census results to be um, accurate in order to correctly predict their spending and their um, bureau needs for the next coming four years. So um, for the census to really not succeed in capturing the data it was supposed to or not succeed as well as it was supposed to is a bit of a concern because it means we're making um, budget decisions and projections based on potentially wobbly data. Um, but yeah, it's uh, like certainly um, as someone who's followed the debate and has gotten involved in a few Twitter Twitter like flame wars over the census thing, I'm I'm very happy to see that there's at least some visibility around it um, at a government level, and that the opposition party is bringing it to attention and and calling out some accountability. And certainly, like I, I think I think is an, a nice parallel is if if you looked at the way a a corporate business was spending money and you saw, for instance, a $3 billion increase, but then like a decrease in all measurable key results, you'd be saying, well, how can that be? That's, that's really not a well-run business. So I think, you know, obviously government is um, party to a number of constraints that are hard and are different to corporate world, but, but certainly we'd, we'd want to like hold them at least somewhat responsible for what's going on with their spending and whether they're engaging the right, the right service providers and certainly another interesting thing um, in the criticism from the Labour Party is that there's a culture, a manager culture, which is maybe resistant to change and maybe not so willing to take on um, experts that aren't really large, you know, like your IBMs and your Deloitte's and your really, really big service providers. And that resistance to like looking at smaller people or to like even changing the way they tackle the whole like sourcing providers is part of the problem at the heart of this. And, and certainly from, from my experience on the other side of the fence, I would agree with that. Like it, I think if you're only used to employing really, really big service providers and you, you need like all of this reassurance that they've been around for 20 years and they've got this many sort of consultancies under their belt, it's it's going to make the barrier for entry so high for most companies as to be almost like unforeseeable. Um, and it certainly, you know, I wouldn't call it a monopoly, but it makes it sort of like a duopoly or a, the three version of that, right? It makes, it makes it very hard for them to choose other than amongst a couple of very large service providers. And that, that I'd say is, is definitely like the culture issue coming out. So it's a balance between trust and innovation yeah right like making space for new people and new ideas and maybe being a little bit le like obviously like we're talking about really enormous budgets here but um i'd argue maybe they could be splitting out their service providers into smaller projects and um getting more more service providers involved and and but also like there has to be that cultural willingness to like you know, go along the journey and try something out of their comfort zone and, and not just like do business as normal because that's that's kind of what's gotten them into this trouble in the first place. Um, but well, talking of um, 
people, business is normal and tech. Um, I'm trying to do a segue that's worthy of Warren Davies. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm there. Um, there's been a few rumors going around about Tim Cook, the vaulted CEO at Apple. Apparently, he's testing a glucose tracker for the Apple Watch, um, which is potentially a really interesting application of wearable tech and certainly one that I'm really interested to hear how, how well it goes and particularly how accurate it can be because I know that for the you know large number of diabetics out there this is this is a problem like the constant finger pricking and like blood tests um, and if there would be a non-invasive way of tracking your blood glucose levels um, that was as simple as wearing a watch it could be potentially a really life-altering result for them. Has there been any indication of how it works without uh, pricking well, blood see, tests? It's, it says glucose trackers currently on the market are use sensors to penetrate the skin. So I'm guessing it's some oh. kind of light. Maybe it's infrared. I don't know. It's a prototype and it's, to be fair, the article publishing this news is a little bit hedging its bets. I think that there obviously there hasn't actually been a press release about this yet. So we don't know exactly what the tech is. Um, but yeah, obviously the like the key points are a non-invasive device to monitor blood sugar levels as opposed to the the finger pricking. So that's that's clearly the selling point. Um, and and certainly um, there's there's a large number in both Australia and America. More than 29 million Americans suffer from, from diabetes. Um, so that's that's a large number of people that could stop pricking their finger multiple times a day. Um, and you can imagine what an improvement to quality of life that could be. And if it's on all the time, then I suppose it'd be probably constantly monitoring. Mm, right, and that could potentially give you much more granular information and more more articulate information about whether your blood sugar is going up or you know, spiking or going down and maybe even give you more feedback um, early on if something is going wrong so that you don't sort of react because you felt something happen you know, in your body, but it's, it's told you before even you had that sense of symptoms. Um, so a biomedical expert, John L. Smith, said, developing the device has been the most difficult technical challenge I have encountered in my career. So, you know, that that speaks positively to potentially it being quite an interesting piece of new tech. So we'll follow the story um, with with bated breath and hopefully we can come back in a few more weeks and tell you guys something a little bit more concrete about what's going on here. Um, and the last, the last news story I'd like to um, bring to your attention because it's one we've followed as well, and it's it's really quite a fun one, is Google's program AI AlphaGo has successfully beaten so many elite Go players. They've decided that it can go into retirement. So, you know, the AI has actually beaten sufficient number of um, top elite Go players. And if, you, if you're if you new to this um, game or if it's not familiar to you, Go is a game where you have a large board of black and white checkers and you have stones and it's it has a very, very large number of potential plays. So unlike the games playing chess, um, the AI challenge for Go has been to work out strategies and predict what to do without being able to 
predict all of the possible moves of the game because there's just simply too many. It's exponentially enormous, right? So this has been kind of a feat of the machine learning community being able to see um, a, a machine learning program succeed at just developing a strategy without having like what you might call 2020 vision into the future of, of what those um, actual moves could look like as this is simply too many to predict. Um, so yes, AlphaGo is stepping down. So bon voyage and thank you for proving us that humans really are not as smart as machines. <laughs> Have you seen the movie? It was about four years ago um, called Computer Chess. It was no. set in 1980 and it's a little bit surreal. Um, and it's about a bunch of programmers uh, taking on uh computer chess and um, mm. competing against chess players. And it's really funny, quite weird. Um, highly recommend looking it up. That sounds fascinating. I would love to have a look. Um, certainly the the world of chess playing is its own weird little enclave, right? Like you get some very interesting characters and it's the people who are really into it are really obsessive and really quite fascinating. So I can imagine the same holds true when you look at the computer programmers in the, in the domain. So um, we have two guests in studio now, and to be completely honest and give full disclosure, I'll have to tell everyone that I did in fact work with these two fellows for quite a while. In fact, it was almost two years all up, I think. Um, so welcome to the studio, Andrew Yap. Thanks for having me. And Bernard Duchesne, did I say it right? Oh, that's perfect. Okay, he has a very confusing, slightly French last name. <laughs> I don't think I've pronounced it correctly in all the years I've known you. You've so. only had two years to learn it. Yeah, time. exactly. Clearly, I'm not a fast pickup. <laughs> so these two are the founders of a Melbourne-based startup called Medtasker, whose goal is to improve communications in hospitals and make them run more efficiently and ultimately make healthcare better, basically. So welcome, guys. Um, we'd love to hear more about your stories. So tell me, when and where did you two meet? I'll kick off, you, I guess. Do you want to start? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we met uh, probably back in 2014 mm -hmm. at a at a Melbourne-based meetup. Actually, um, I was uh, around looking for people to help start a business uh, and didn't know, you know really where to go. And because we we're wanting to start a tech business, and I'm a my background is in clinical medicine. I wanted to, well, find someone that actually knew what the hell they were doing. And so I stumbled into Bernard, which was pretty lucky. Mm -hmm. yeah. so and I'll, Bernard, were you, were you at that meetup to look for a co-founder or to learn some stuff I, about tech? Well, uh, I had been doing um, enterprise consulting for a few years before, mm -hmm. decided to stop and work for smaller companies um, just by pure interest and it's also more progressive and that's actually where I, I met you um, Laura mm -hmm. uh, we work for Collab Forge um, yeah and, we were both um, contracting there yeah and then when the contract finished I actually decided to um, uh, join the hub which is a co-working space and uh, I gave myself a few months to basically look for uh, interesting projects or companies to um, to join I, I definitely wanted to do a startup at that point yeah mm -hmm. He didn't mention that he was actually giving the talk at the meetup, and it was around, um, you know, continuous integration and essentially making sure that the technology and the the software always works. So, uh, you know, I, I so Andrew, so that was actually a meetup that uh, I was actually invited just the day before because the speaker 
uh, fell ill, and uh, Andrew was was there, um, mm. and uh, basically he came and uh, talked to me afterward, and I said, "Come and see me at the hub," and uh, he came over, and we started discussing at that time, and that was basically a period of um, it took what um, maybe three, four weeks, maybe. Um, Maybe a bit longer. I thought it was about six weeks. Mm-hmm. We were essentially married, so it was like this courting yes. period of, you know, are we going to start yeah. a business together? Um, mm-hmm. Do we actually know what we're going to do? Uh, are we going to... It's it's a huge yeah. commitment, but... Absolutely. Like, I think, I mean, the stats around this failure rate for startups are woeful, right? Like, something like over 90% fail within the first three years. So, obviously, it's it's not as... It's a pretty serious undertaking to get into. And particularly, you know, Bernard, you've been around tech for a while, so you've probably seen some pretty spectacular failures in your time. Yes, I, I, I mean, I spent many years in Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. uh, came from there with the view of, basically, you know, the next step is you start a company, you do a startup. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was way before it became, I would say, fashionable. Right now, mm-hmm. you come out of business school, and it seems like th- doing the startup is basically the reason you go to business school. Uh, There's actually like a business program that is just around becoming an entrepreneur. Like they've just totally made a track for people who want to come out of school and be a startup startup founders. So that's it's it's definitely as you say the the trendy topic of the day. Um, so, so you meet at this meetup, and and I just I didn't realize that Bernard was pulled in at the last minute to give a talk. So, so Andrew, you see Bernard give a talk, you think, oh, this guy knows what he's what he's doing, and you you start chatting. So, what what did it look like from there? Like, how did you decide from you know that initial like, oh, we're both interested in this thing to to like you know start signing some paperwork and like actually build a business together? We I, we gotta clarify here. I mean, Andrew mm-hmm. basically spent. Um, probably a year and a half before. Uh, he's a medical doctor mm-hmm. and he spent a year and a half before in um, basically a hospital and also the IT departments of a hospital and uh, really had a niche. He had a problem that he had to solve and uh, he had a very clear idea on how to solving it. Mm-hmm. And he was basically at the phase of looking at the implementation of basically how to build a product to solve the the, the problem that, he, that basically was driving him. And uh, so he came to me with this very sharp and focused idea and uh, extremely enthusiastic about it and mm-hmm. uh, no, very driven. And uh, no, no, that, that kind of really swayed me over. Crazy. I mean, it's. Well, I never thought um, Bernard would be actually interested in doing a startup. You know, he had this wealth of experience and, you know, someone uh, who had spent so many years building, you know, these large enterprise systems, enterprise systems. It was absolutely something or the type of person that I was hoping to, you know, work with, but uh, I never thought he'd do it until he said, Hey, I'm at the hub and actually I'm looking for something to do. So getting back to your question, it was just a process of trying a small project. So I'd actually, before working with Bernard, uh, as you mentioned, been going for about a year and a half looking at how to do it. And I had a couple of mates that we, we tried to start things together. We did a 72-hour lock-in at a, at a co-working space and tried to build a small product, and we did. Uh, it was essentially a, uh, a system that sent pager messages in a structured fashion. So it might come as news to some of your listeners that the main way doctors and nurses communicate in the hospital is via a pager, uh, mm-hmm. so the beeper that you see on TV. And the content of those messages is pretty rubbish. It can just be a telephone number. It can be, hey, what's happening? But no context and no way to get further information. And all we wanted to do was send better quality pager messages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for a weekend, a bunch of mates and I got together and we we created an app, an iOS, an Android, and a, and a web app that 
sent structured pager messages. Um, so when you say structured pager messages, just for the audience who maybe don't know what kinds of communications we're talking about, like what kinds of stuff would these messages contain? Like how do you, when, and when you say structured, like what do you mean? Right, so I guess when you leave a voicemail, you usually say, hey, I am Andrew and uh, I'm calling because of X, Y, and Z and please call me back on telephone number. But sometimes pager messages don't even have that basic information of, you know, who's calling, what's it about, and this is how you contact me. And so we just wanted to provide uh, that minimum information plus a few more clinically relevant pieces of information to make sure that every time someone got a message, if it was about a you know important thing, patient's sick, unwell, you know, needs help immediately, that the person receiving the message would have that information that they needed to go and you know respond accordingly. Mm. So you're saying that someone could be getting a message and not know like who to call or what patient it was meant to be about, like exactly in the average average course of a hospital day. Well, I think we we did a, a study and eighty percent of uh, pager messages uh, didn't have you know, what was required by hospital accreditation standards to to be acceptable, mm. uh, and so that was something that you know, basic thing that we could do to improve the quality of communications in hospitals and, and make a difference to patients. Mm, right. So, um, so oh, we, sorry, no, keep, keep going. Yeah, yeah, so we were, you know, kind of, I was working with a couple of mates. Unfortunately, they couldn't leave their full-time jobs to do a startup. Um, when I spoke to app development companies and other, other large organisations about doing joint ventures, uh, but ultimately, you know, as I, as I said, was trying to build a technology company and needed to have all of that in-house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, we, we started working together, Bernard and I, um, on a small project as well. So we, yeah. we, we built the similar type paging app mm-hmm. um, and, and went from there. But that took a period of uh, time, but not only just figuring out whether we could actually build stuff together, but whether it would be a good fit. And um, we had a colleague, Mark Harrison, uh, who had been in the startup space for about five years already and had worked with various founders trying to get together. And he devised a a list of questions, probably 60 or 70 questions on all ranges of topics. So it was kind of like a a bare all, um, uh, you know, really frank, honest discussion. Anything from religious views to basically who's going to be the CEO, who's going to be this and that. Right, so this is the stuff that's like the coding phase is over, like the honeymoon is finished, now you get down to brass tacks. Well, it's actually before when you start, and it it was actually a very good process. Mm -hmm. It's basically figuring out how do you stand on so many different issues, and and especially things like, for example, equity. I mean, how do you uh, see splitting the equity? Uh, So it's 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 fundamental questions but uh we realize that there's uh, quite a few startups that actually don't don't go through that rigorous mm-hmm. process and even then um it's still really a, a matter of luck very often right you because it's a massive process doing a startup means um six or seven days at least uh at least six days or seven days a week for you know in our case years um Mm. Oh, you mean like working six working or seven and, days? And, and you're basically yeah, with a person. Yeah. So it's more like, you know, it's really mm. like, a, it's a partnership where you end up seeing your, you know, the partner more often than you see your significant other. Mm. Uh, and it is it is true. I mean, it's Unless all, a bromance is born. That's right. He's <laughs> yeah. a work husband. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that, that process, that set of questions, like what were the most surprising to you that you, you maybe didn't expect to have to think about when you were setting up a business? Um, things like... Well, there were, there were simple things like, 
how much money do you have and how much how how long can you go without earning money and things like do you, you know what is your family situation is that going to change in the future uh because that can potentially impact a business mm-hmm. to things like mm-hmm. how long, I mean this the the obvious things are the how long do you want to do this thing for uh mm-hmm. but some of the more surprising things were hey do you have any health issues that may uh affect the course of the business or do you have any you know uh legal issues that may affect the course of the business or um, now what do you reckon if if uh, someone joins the company and then you know goes off sick and, and never comes back would you ax them would you you know keep them around and help them through their difficult time what would you know all those all those things or are you aiming to uh, build a company to sell it or are you aiming to actually go further mm. uh, I mean Right. Do you, goals, is, your, yeah. is your primary goal like immediate acquisition or do you want to build a sustainable business and continue to run it yourself exactly. into yeah. the future? Yeah, right. Yeah. So you did this like in, it, intense vetting process really early on and that's after having done this sort of short project and then you got stuck in. So from there, I know like having worked with you guys, the, the experience was a lot, a lot, a lot of work before we hit a real hospital environment. So talk to me about that process. Like we, there was maybe like, a bit of a surprise on, on how intense the sales cycle we, would be for hospitals. Yes, yeah, so we initially uh, expected to have a sale, let's say, in six months, I mm. think. Was that right? I think it only took about, uh, what was that, 18? Yeah, 18, 24 months? Which is, <laughs> yeah, 18 months, which I believe is, is kind of an average for um, selling to a hospital. Mm. Right, so it's a tough environment. Yeah. yeah, particularly for a startup and particularly when you're trying to improve your business model, like it's it's very different to retail. Um, so how how did you find that that first opportunity to like get into a hospital? Like when we went to the first place that there was um, a demo, we were sort of running a pilot, like after having spent all that time thinking about how this thing would work and then finally getting in there, like how, how did you guys find that as, as the parents of this baby? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, in, in hospital, it's an enterprise. It's like an enterprise field, basically, which mm-hmm. means you can't really go with a half product mm-hmm. like you very often hear. Um, no, you go with basically a, um, MVP product, and then mm. no, you're and trying to improve it. Iterate, you're trying yeah. to get get some some clients right away. So you can't do that with the enterprise. You really have to come up with a product that is finished right off the bat, mm-hmm. and that took some time, uh, quite a bit of time. Uh, so that there was a delay in doing that in the first place. Yeah. Mm. And, and there's also a number of integrations in this product. Like you have to plug into a lot of hospital systems. Exactly, to know, very know ancient about, systems. Yeah. yeah. Well, the uh, the actual data that is being transferred is uh, no, it's ADI based. It's from the '70s, so it's uh, things that are that I had seen in the past, but a long time ago. Let's say it's. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's still better than pages, which are what from the '50s, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And and so hospitals are risk adverse by nature. The the industry that they're in. Um, you know, healthcare, the consequences can be really dire if you screw up. And so it took us a long time to get a system that was robust enough that, like you said, um, integrated with hospital systems, existing paging systems, you know, electronic medical records, uh, all types of other hospital systems mm. uh, in order for them to be comfortable that, hey, this is actually something that's going to make a difference for us. Mm. Mm. 
So I've got a kind of curly question. If you if you don't want to answer this, it's okay. You can just wave at me and say no. But um, so so now that you've been through that experience, like I know when you started, you bootstrapped this business, and there was a couple of government grants and things, but it was it was mostly like very little funding to start. So would you do that again, or do you think you would go back and like try and spin up some VC capital before you started? And this is this is maybe going out to all those young entrepreneurs out there who are like chomping at the bit with a problem it's, they want to solve. Well, it, it is hard to get VC capital if, uh, straight off the bat. I mean, mm. VC wouldn't give you money first mm. of all, or they Sorry, would basically angel, take angel investors is the um, right term. And like the that. problem with that is uh, initially they basically just value how much time you're spending in. So they put zero value on what you're actually building. So they would value what is it about a hundred thousand mm. dollar? Let's have your time, and that's that's basically based on the forty hours week so if basically you've been in business or you've had your startup for a year you they value your business at two hundred thousand dollars if you're two people in it mm. right. so they give you a hundred thousand dollar and they take fifty percent of it so they would it there's basically no no um let's say um you you're losing too much if you're going for vc money or angel investor money right off the bat mm. um and i guess i was thinking i don't know if i'd change how we've done it in terms of the financing. I mean, we were quite lucky in that we were able to put some money into the business. Um, you know, I, I could work uh, a bit t- like part-time or, mm. or less than part-time as a doctor and then mm. help you know, fund the business, which was, which was a really fortunate position to be in. Mm. Uh, but it also allowed us the time to, to learn because mm. neither of us had started businesses before. I definitely had virtually zero business training or or understanding about accounting and legal and mm. you know, building a team and so all of that culture building all of that fun stuff learning that um bit by bit over time i think mm. was helpful i i know money definitely speed potentially speeds things up but i don't i don't necessarily think i'd do it differently yeah right um, yeah and and bernardo you, you agree with that you think this is like the slow but steady was like the right call for you guys it, um, I mean, it's wishful thinking to think that we can oh, make look, thing, I, obviously things. Obviously, I'm, 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 um, I'm not saying you should go back in time in a time yeah. machine. I'm, I'm more like mining I your wish experience. I could. Come on. <laughs> yes. yeah. That would be pretty rad. Doctor Who, who beans in the house? Um, no, but I, well, no, I'm, I'm just curious because I, I, I know that like you guys, I think when I first met you and chatted to you about like this business, I was really impressed by the maturity and the sort of thoughtfulness of the approach you took to, to tackling this problem. Um, and, and so like, obviously I'm not, I'm not expecting to come out with tons of regrets, but just curious to know if there's any, any nuggets of wisdom for potentially like aspiring, um, entrepreneurs out there. Um, for and and like I'd be curious to hear also about you know you mentioned the aspects of building a technology product that aren't just like the tech you know all of the other things like building a team and working out HR policies and you know working out how to even find people to employ so yeah. I'd be curious to hear about that aspect I, I think I mean to start with you need deep knowledge uh, domain knowledge so in our case it's health healthcare mm-hmm. uh, hospitals and. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Andrew had spent quite a bit of time thinking about a specific problems. So you need that, either it's in the banking industry or any other domain. So you need that and you need to be able to put, be placed in, in front of a problem. Uh, then you can use technology to solve it. Right? You look at the, the best technology that would fit that. So that's basically, uh, in the case of the technology, that's what I did. I, picked, uh, I basically purely picked on the domain that we were in. 
so you can't really go at it, first of all, from a technology point of view. So you see a lot of startup based on technology and they're trying to find a market, but it's... Um, mm. my, a solution I've looking never, for a problem sort of thing. Yeah, it, I'm not saying that it never works. I mean, but it's um, it's it's not the way we did it, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's not the way I was looking at it, even though I'm the technical, let's say, side of the company. And um, um, I was never thinking of basically starting with purely technology and then coming up with a, an area where that could be applied. You like, didn't. You didn't have a tech stack in mind before you knew the problem you wanted to tackle. Exactly. Actually, none of the mm -hmm. technology we we picked uh, existed even seven years ago or eighty years ago, mm -hmm. and I had not worked with it. So it's basically just a matter of looking at the moment what fit best mm -hmm. for what we were trying to do, which was basically. Uh, um, uh, basically a task uh, attachment task uh, oriented system a task management system mm -hmm. for hospitals not between nurses and doctors mm. yeah. I guess in terms of uh, regrets um, you know we at the start we spent a lot of time looking about looking at sorry, technology mm -hmm. and and building technology and it's counterintuitive well the typical startup philosophy is you know build it get it out there as soon as possible, mm -hmm. get in the hands of users, mm -hmm. iterate quickly. If you're not embarrassed, you haven't shipped fast enough. Exactly. And and I'd be the, the one that always trying to hold us back and, and that's atypical uh, and, and not necessarily uh, typical startup philosophy. Um, so we kind of built it and prayed they would come and, of course, they didn't necessarily come because they didn't know that there was a solution to uh, the problem that we were solving. And so... Learning about enterprise sales was something that uh, was a, is it, we're on a journey. Um, mm. You know, we don't have a single way in which we sell, and it's just you know pick it up and and plonk it in, and away you go. It, it's it's learning about that, and and so finding within our team, we didn't have that expertise, and going out to find it was something really important. So, I guess if I'm thinking back about how we we did things, you know, potentially having that enterprise sales, hospital sales, business brain um, or experience earlier on um, to help us kind of get into hospitals faster than may definitely have helped. Mm. Um, so you, when you were um, discovering this world of enterprise sales, like what, what's different about that compared to say the retail sector? Like what are the, what are the things that you had to go out and do that you maybe wouldn't consider doing if you were just selling an app on an app store? Right. Uh, well, when you're doing the, selling an app on an app store, the person that is, you know, considering buying it is usually the person that makes the decision. In a hospital, it's not like that at all. In fact, um, in hospitals, there's a procurement cycle. We, we're, we're selling to government uh, institutions, so uh, there are lots of processes and regulations around who makes the decision and what has to happen in order to sell. So, for example, um, things over a couple hundred thousand dollars need to go to tender, which means mm -hmm. that it's, you know, the right requirements, it goes open slather and then anyone can respond in. Uh, but when we're going and selling to hospitals, it's not just one person that makes a decision because our solution affects so many different areas, nursing, allied health, um, medical, you know, orderlies, medical workforce, uh, switchboard, you know, governance in hospitals. All these, all these different people need to sign off on it and, and agree that it's a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. Of course, they need to write business cases and then the typical sales cycle in hospital is nine to 24 months, usually 12 to 24 months. And so that's a killer for startups. You know, you've mm -hmm. heard of the valley of death where mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you're trying to get your product out of the market, but if it takes 24 months to sell it in, 
you know, you just surviving that, you know, the first sale is really hard and mm. the first sale is never going to get you enough to cover all your all your costs. No, it's just it's just a proof of concept, right? It's just proving that you actually have built something viable that people want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've um we've chatted for longer than I realized, so I'm going to I'll I'll just um I'll end with one last question, which is um what's the future look like for Metasker? Like, congratulations guys for making it this far. I think you're like at the edge of that time frame where most startups have failed by, so thank oh, you. Oh, thanks, Laura. It's really excellent <laughs> that you're still going. We've survived. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um So yeah, what what does the future look like? So we've now deployed at our first hospital site, which is really great here in Victoria. We are in a tender at another Australian organisation, so we're in the final stages of that, and hopefully we'll hear something in the next couple of months. Yes. Um, we've got a pilot up in Queensland that we'll be announcing uh, in the next two months, uh, as well as another Victorian hospital, hopefully. So there could be a lot, a lot of movement in the next three months, and so, you know, when we get back here, we might not... Hopefully we'll have some very exciting news for the next time we have you on the show. That would be really exciting. Well, congratulations again, guys. I think you've done really, really excellent work. And I know that you've, um, you've had a lot of challenges as a small business. And um, I think it's a really, really um, important problem to solve, like making technology better in hospitals. So well Thank, done. Thanks a lot for having us. Yeah, thanks. Um, we've been biting tonight, bite into it tonight, and we've been talking computers, new tech, gadgets, and startups. So to to finish up, we're gonna have a bit of a chat about another big news story of the week, which is a Queensland-based startup that succeeded in raising really a ton of money and has recently gone into receivership and all of this money, they've, the capital they've raised has basically gone kaput. So this is a music streaming startup called Govera, I think is how you pronounce it. And they raised all up $180 million worth of investor capital. Um, and their, their product model was ostensibly a way for you to go online, stream content like music and videos for free, and watch your favorite bands and performers and stuff and for ad revenue to pay for it. So basically um, Spotify free in essence. Um, they did start, in fact, right around the time that Spotify was launched in Europe, so they weren't aware of a like large competing service when that happened. But um, yeah, they have recently um, announced that the, the company is kaput. And it's a, it's a really interesting story. The two um, main C-level guys, the founders, they were paying themselves really generous salaries and they were big personalities, right? So you have um, Darren Herft, who was from was the CEO and who was getting about 250000 a year and Clays Loberg, who was the tech founder and he was getting about 300000 a year um, and they both own significant portions of the company and yeah, it's, it's really um, like personally coming from the startup space it's it's hard to hear about people raising this much money and then not really making a product with it and particularly when you know there's so many great ideas out there that aren't getting funding that aren't getting visibility so um in the end it looks like these guys were maybe better um revenue fund uh, fundraisers than they were technology builders um but yeah, did you did you hear at all about this, Joe? Does this does this interest you? This whole like, where did this mystery 180 million dollars go? I was just reading the article before we came on, and it's so depressing. Like, it sounds like it wasn't just sort of rich people who invested. It sounded like in the article that there was sort of you know your mom and pop 
Yeah, absolutely. They they roast a significant portion of their stake through SMSFs, which is self-managed super funds, if you're unfamiliar with the acronym. And what that means is people whose essentially retirement savings is sitting there and they're managing it themselves. They chose to invest it in this startup company, which then literally disappeared and took their money with them. Um, and you can you can see in the article a number of people en- ended up saying, oh, well, I've just written off that investment and I've given the money up for lost. Um, but yeah, certainly it's it's pretty sad to think that individuals, you know, not not um, capital firms, not people yeah. whose job it is to fund new businesses, but rather just individuals were the ones who were um, were were taken taken maybe for a bit of a ride. Um, and uh, it's quite funny if you if you read the story of how they would raise capital, they'd you know rent out ballrooms at Crown and like run this big sexy showy event and you know people would come in and check out what was going on and they'd it's almost you kind of think of like it's like the tech Amway you know or something it's like this this big thing and it's got lots of PR and marketing and it seems like maybe it's very um, very safe but really it was just a completely unproven business model at the time and certainly they didn't they didn't succeed in delivering anything near revenue and I, I believe that the only reason they continued to raise money was because there were some um, purchase uh, rumors running around that like they were going to get bought out by a big company so you can imagine if Spotify or one of the other big streaming services wanted to kill them as competition they would have done so easily by buying them and then turning down the service but but that never happened and so there was never an IPO there was never any kind of like return on investment for these guys um so yeah interesting story certainly not what we want for the um Australian startup scene and hopefully we'll maybe make investors a little bit more savvy a little bit more cynical going forwards and think twice before um putting particularly something like super money like that's definitely not a good idea guys never go out there and put your super money in something like a startup that doesn't have a proven revenue bottle um I'd definitely I definitely avoid that. Um, but yeah, it's 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 definitely uh, made a big splash this week, and certainly the corporate side of the founding team has moved on to business coaching training. And um, I, I would encourage people to avoid that because I don't think that's necessarily going to give you the the kinds of advice that you would want. Um, and, and aside from the sad news story, there are some really cool things happening. So, Joe, can you tell us what's coming up in Melbourne in tech? Yeah, there's an event coming up uh, this Monday, the 5th of June at 4pm, and it's free. It is Transforming Outcomes, Practices and Cultures Through STEM Education Research. It's a public seminar featuring Dr. Joe Walter, uh, who is the Director of Engineering Education Transformation Institute at the University of Georgia in, um, well, Athens, Georgia. So a rapidly changing world has brought STEM education to a crossroads. The fields can rise to the challenge of preparing researchers and practitioners to play a key role in addressing the grand challenges of our time or risk becoming irrelevant in a globally connected socio-technical and complex world. That's what the blurb says. And apparently in this talk, uh, Dr. Joe Walter will draw on examples from his engineering education research program and experiences in leading institutional change to illustrate the multiple interconnected opportunities for fusing fundamental education research with teaching innovation and cultural change in STEM. So, yeah. That if sounds you, fascinating. And it's a free event, right? Like you don't have to pay anything to get there? It is free. And if you go to Swinburne's web website and hit up the events part of their website you can find out more there 
I'll throw one more event in there, which I know off the top of my head, there's um, a touring tech event coming here to Melbourne next week called Localhost Deployment. And the meetup is Localhost and the event is called Deployment. And they're touring three speakers around the capital cities in Australia so that meetup communities can kind of cross-pollinate and get the same talk and the same experience um, within the same couple of weeks, which I think is quite a lot of fun. And I know a few people um, working on it. So shout out to Pat and Mandy working on this event. Um, but yeah, this is this is local host. It's next Wednesday. It's, I believe, um, cross-pollinating with the MELB CSS meetup for people who are already going to that. Um, it is a paid event, but it's reasonably cheap. And I think that's just to try and make sure they don't get a lot of um, drop-offs at the door. So check out local host deployment. And um, otherwise, keep tacking away, Melbourne. Um, Thank you for tuning in tonight. Thank you so much to our guests, Andrew Yap and Bernard Duchenne from MedTasker. It was really great chatting to you guys. Um, We've been Bite Into It with Joe and Laura, and we will be back next Wednesday evening. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.